folks, welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I am your host, Chadi Nabhan, a hematologist and a medical oncologist with interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. And today we are talking about communication and cancer. How do we communicate a difficult diagnosis, a cancer diagnosis? How do we do that in adults, in pediatrics, with families, with parents, and with children? It is not easy, it is difficult, it is challenging. And how do we communicate a difficult diagnosis while maintaining hope? Our patients require and mandate hope from us and we need to maintain hope. We need to always be hopeful as we take care of all patients, especially patients diagnosed and affected with cancer. And I'm very honored and privileged to have Dr. Jennifer Mack with me on Healthcare Unfiltered today to discuss all things communication with cancer. Uh, I got to learn about Dr. Mack's work when I um, read an editorial that she actually published in the Journal of Oncology Practice. Uh, it was really a very thoughtful editorial uh, and it was, it was titled, The Day One Talk. 20 years later, what have we learned? Uh, so basically this editorial was referring to a study that was published in the Journal of Oncology Practice, but uh, Dr. Mack will tell us the story about this editorial and the day one talk. Dr. Mack is an Associate Chief, Division of Population Sciences, Senior Physician and Associate Professor in Pediatrics at Harvard Medical uh, School. Uh, she is interested in pediatric solid tumors, and she is a pediatric hematologist and oncologist. Couldn't be happier to host Dr. Mack on today's podcast. She is a thought leader in the field of communication. She's a teacher and articulate in explaining how best we communicate these diagnoses in difficult scenarios. Before I air the episode, I taped with Dr. Mack on Healthcare Unfiltered. I would like to make sure you subscribe to the show, rate the show, and you can find the show everywhere you consume podcasts. Don't forget to write a brief review and refer your friends and colleagues to the show. I also would like to plug in my book, Toxic Exposure, the true story behind the Monsanto trials and the search for justice. The book depicts my story of how I testified as an expert witness against Monsanto and Roundup in the first three litigation trials that were all won by the patients. Check it out anywhere you consume books, uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or my publisher, Johns Hopkins University Press. Check out my website, www.shadinabhan.com. And if you are an avid listener, do not forget to text me or email me and request the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast t-shirt. You can follow me on Twitter at Chadi Nabhan or Instagram Chadi underscore healthcare unfiltered. Without further ado, Dr. Jennifer Mack on healthcare unfiltered. Let's just start by giving folks a little bit of background about you. You know who you are, what you do, and 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 just uh, uh, just tell us a little bit about uh, who Dr. Jennifer Mack is. Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, so I'm a pediatric oncologist. I work at Dana-Farber and Boston Children's in Boston. 
Um, and those are Harvard Medical School institutions. So I'm also an associate professor at Harvard Medical School. And um, I do research in issues related to health communication, um, both in children and adults. Um, a lot of my work currently is focused on adolescents and young adults. And then I also have a role in um, leading our faculty development office at our institution. And I direct a group called the Center for Outcomes and Policy Research, um, which includes a lot of you know, outcomes research, kind of like what I do. That's wonderful. So are you a Patriots fan? Uh, I'm not really a football person, to be <laughs> honest. <laughs> So, you know, <laughs> I, I ask because I am a Patriots fan. I lived in Boston a long time ago uh, before uh, residency, before I'm moving to Chicago. So um, how like when you say you do uh, research on communication, I mean, you know, the oncologist in me always thinks of the research more pertaining to, you know, trials, new drug, drug development. What got you interested in this kind of research? Um uh, it's not the typical path in terms of uh, yeah. research. Yeah, I mean, that was especially true when I was in my training. You know, I think there are more people who do this now. But when I was um, when I was in my fellowship training, one of the things that I saw clinically was that communicating was one of the really challenging things that we do. And um that it was one of our most important tools, you know, one of the most important things that we do for patients and families. But when I went to the literature to try to get guidance on it, there were a lot of papers where people said, here's what I do, but there weren't a lot of papers that actually showed evidence um, for the right thing to do. And, you know, in everything else, we practice evidence-based medicine, right? We try to find the right thing to do based on the best data available and, you know, rigorous studies. And um, so I thought, you know, we should be able to study this. We should be able to garner an evidence base that can guide what we do and, and help us because this is such an important thing. Um, and I was lucky to find mentors who were interested in this too and, and who helped me figure out the tools. And uh, so it's been a really, you know, rewarding part of my career. I think it's endlessly interesting. You know, there's a million questions to ask in this field. And, um, you know, again, I think it's it feels so clinically relevant, so relevant to my practice that I, I always enjoy it. Well, it is, I mean, let's face it, it's extremely important. I mean, how many times patients would leave a doctor because they just are unhappy, not with the recommendations of therapy, but you know how they talk to, I mean, this is this is extremely important. I mean, I'll argue it's part of quote unquote healthcare delivery, right? I mean, it's, you're delivering something. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of questions. It won't be millions, but uh, I have like a few things that I would like us, uh, me and you to discuss. But but I also want to confess that what triggered me to contact you with a very, very nice editorial that you published in the Journal of Oncology Practice, I thought it's uh, it's it's very nice. And it's you started by commenting on a paper that was published two decades ago. Mm -hmm. So... Um, I want to start there. What, what what happened 20 years ago uh, that you wrote a paper? Tell us a little bit about the history of that. 
Yeah, I mean, I was I was a fellow then, right? I was in my training and I worked closely with one of our senior attendings, Holcomb Greer, um, who's still a good friend. He's mostly retired now, but he's, you'll still catch him at meetings. Um, and, um, you know, he was very interested in this idea of the day one talk, you know, what we, what we call the day one talk, which is the first conversation about diagnosis and treatment. You know, when we sit down with a family and we say, okay, you know, we know what's going on and here's what we're going to do about it. And, um, and so we decided to write this paper um, and um, talk about strategies for having this conversation in a way that is informative and compassionate and, you know, all the things that that you hope that that kind of conversation might be as a way to give guidance to um, to young people. And so it was um, and that was published in in the Journal of Clinical Oncology, I think, in 2004. And um, and and Holcomb and I have taught about this. We've taught our fellows about this. We've taught it. We've actually taught um you know, at, at our institution, you know, we've taught this to surgeons and anesthesiologists and people from other fields. If you got surgeons to communicate well, that's it, you're done. You could, <laughs> you arrived. We actually work with the best surgeons. And I have to say, I learn from them all the time. There's many of them are just incredible communicators. So, <laughs> so I'm very, very lucky. Um, but yeah, they invited us to, to come, you know, talk about that as well, because they struggle with it you know, and, um, and, and other institutions have used, you know, used the paper, still use the paper to teach their fellows, which is really fun. Um, so that's kind of how it started. That was, that was my first paper was, um, was the day one talk. And um, so let me, let me start there with, with the day one talk a little bit. Um, there are times where you know that things are not looking well, yeah. right? Um you know, you could be seeing a patient where it's literally, you know, it's hospice. Yeah. And you could see a patient where things obviously are bad, but there are treatments, that, but the prognosis is not great. Do you feel that all of this must be communicated in the first visit? Is there a process by which the communication should be a little bit tailored? Like in essence, you really don't want your patient to just completely feel it's doom and gloom day one, and you can filter some of this as you progress in the relationship. Yeah, it's a great question, and um, you know, there's there's actually a nice pair of articles that a terrific oncologist Tony Bach wrote in JCO um, some years ago about conveying prognosis and. He, um, I really like the way he thinks about it because he thinks about two different scenarios. There are the situations where you, you feel like as an oncologist, you must convey this information to allow them to make good decisions. And then there are situations where there's flexibility. And, you know, I think we all have to decide for ourselves what are the musts, you know, and, um, but, you know, for me, for example, if I know that a cancer is incurable, 
I feel like I have to convey that, um, you know, early on so that the patient or family or both can make a good decision about the care, an informed decision, you know, yeah. about what they would want in those circumstances. You know, I think in, in other circumstances where you may be in a more gray zone, you can work a little bit with the patient and family to figure out what what do they want to know and and yeah. when and how. Um, so that's kind of what I use. Yeah, but how much was this, uh, Jennifer, influenced by your mentor? Because that makes me think about the education process at our institutions. And it is possible. You had a great mentor. You wrote a paper with him 20 years ago, and he taught you this. And I don't know how much current fellows or residents really get a curriculum or a structured teaching into the way you deliver bad news or communicate. Yeah, yeah, I think that's very true. Um, and actually, that was one of the things, you know, the the editorial that you mentioned in, in JOP was in response to a study that was done by another group. And um, I don't think I can tell you off the top of my head what their what all their statistics were, but one of the things they looked at is how how people learn how to do this. And there still in their study was a lot of this kind of see one, do one, you know, type of situation where you watch someone do it and then you do it yourself. And a lot of, you know, just kind of learning by doing as opposed to having structured curriculum. And so I do think that's very true that that this is not, I think it's because much more common that this is a part of standard curriculum, but it's definitely not universal. And also, I think the quality of, of different, you know, teaching programs varies and the effectiveness of those programs varies. So, you know, there's, I think there's a lot of room to grow. Yeah. The challenge of what you do, uh, you know, in oncology, obviously, is that we don't always deliver good news. I mean, Thankfully, things have gotten better. We have a lot of new opportunities to deliver good news. But is there a way that you have been able to communicate bad news or less favorable news while really making sure that the family or the patients are not losing hope? Yeah, you know, people talk about this a lot. How how do you do this? And and they worry about giving bad news because they think that it will take away hope. Um, I I don't know that there's an exact answer to this, but we did a study I think in 2007, if I'm remembering right, where we looked at the relationship between prognostic disclosure and hope in parents of children with cancer. And in that study, we actually found that the more, uh, the, the more detail, the more disclosure that a parent received about a child's prognosis, the more hopeful that they felt. And that was the case even um, in the children with the poorest prognoses. And since then, we've replicated that. We even found that to be the case for adolescents and young adults who we often are very protective of. And 
So, um, you mm. know, even for them, having frank, um, honest information actually supported hope. And, you know, I can't tell you exactly why that's the case. Um, I do think, well, I have some different theories, and we tried to do some work to try to figure this out a little bit more. But, um, you know, one thing is uh, that, you know, sometimes I, I meet parents who don't want me to provide information to their children about the diagnosis, for example, and they're worried that it's going to take away hope. And oftentimes what we find is that in that case, and of course, this is about diagnosis, not prognosis, but that that actually the child has already assumed the worst. Uh, you know, they've seen that their parents are afraid or tearful or whatever it is, you know, and they their minds immediately go to the worst possibility. And so when they actually get honest information, it's a relief, you know, because they have that clarity, you've taken away some uncertainty around it, and they can start to deal with reality, uh, you know, and I do think that even for the case of a difficult prognosis, that uncertainty can be very burdensome, very difficult to deal with. And once they, you know, families know that we're being honest and open about this, they can start to grapple with it and, and deal with it. I know that's, you know, that's not going to be universal and it may not be you know, in that very moment that they feel yeah. relieved, you know, of course they feel devastated and we see that. Of course. But I do think that, you know, this is part of what we do as, as physicians, as clinicians, is that we, you know, we help people to deal with what is and, you know, we don't hide it from them. Yeah, you've got two things when it comes to communication and you have family members uh, you have the scenario of children and adults right so there are scenarios where the children or the family members of an adult diagnosed with cancer take you on the side hey doc you know um, can we just not say the word c can we you know whatever it is or can we sugarcoat whatever it is and you've got the other scenario with children. Right. Have you been able to coach healthcare professionals in, in both scenarios? And, and uh, are there differences in how you handle these two scenarios I described? Yeah, I, I mean, I think actually it's not, I'm not sure if it's so different between children and adults. Um, you know, very young children, some of the uh, cognitive piece, like the understanding of it, or even developmentally, how they understand these things may be different. But, you know, I think oftentimes the, the people who we're trying to protect already know that something's very wrong, you know. Very good point. Um, and, you know, so what they don't know is whether they can trust us to, you know, to be honest with them. And so at the very least, we, you know, can be a trusted person through that and, and help them to deal with that. Uh, you know, I think, especially for teenagers, they're really wondering whether they can trust the adults in their life, right? That's a normal thing for a, for an adolescent to be trying to figure that out. And it, especially for a new medical team who they don't know, uh, you know, if we're talking with their parents in one room and then coming out and not really telling them much, 
you know, they, they're not necessarily but, but, uh, going to trust us. But the uniqueness with the children, and again, you're the pediatric anthropologist, so I'm just hypothesizing, is, you know, they're not adults, obviously, so the parents still have the power of whatever attorney, whatever it is. Right. So if it's a 12-year-old, like, do you, I guess, do you have to ask the parents permission? Yeah. Does the child need to be in the room? And if the parent says no... I mean, like, you know, what I mean, like, there's a yeah, little bit of a difference here. I'd like, I'd like you to yeah. elaborate a little bit more on this, because as a parent, I could tell you, well, you know what, I respect you, I appreciate you, but he's my child, he's not 18, I want him outside. Am I, do I have the power to say that? You know, I think that you do. I, yeah, and I think that, um, so for very young kids, you know, we um, usually recommend a separate conversation with a child that is developmentally appropriate because they don't need to know, they don't need to sit there for the two hours of side effects of all the medications we're going to give, right? They they need to know, you know, are they going to stay in the hospital? Are they going to, you know, these kinds of basic things um, for for kind of the the more um, school age type of kids, we usually work with the parent to see what they think is best. Um, and so those are like seven year olds, 10 year olds, you know, I'll, I'll be talking with the parent about what would be most helpful to them. Do they need a conversation with all of us or do they need a conversation of their own and we can talk in a second about what the content of that conversation is right because that's an issue and but then for the teenagers i usually do recommend to the parents that we have them in the room if we can and you know again the reason is that they uh, you know this is this is their body this is their life uh, you know this is um they have to be taking the medications going through the therapy and you know so for them to have some knowledge and ownership of of that information to be involved is often very important. Um, and, you know, sometimes parents will say no, but oftentimes we're able to kind of talk them through it. And, um, you know, I think one thing that we can do is talk about exactly what we're going to say, because, you know, sometimes parents think we're going to say something really, you know, frightening or, or um, you know, something that the child can't bear to hear. And in fact, it's, um, you know, usually we're telling them things that are helpful to them about what, you know, what's happening and what we're planning to do. And so, um, so oftentimes kind of going through that with them to explain, you know, what it is that we're, um, that we're going to talk about can be very helpful. Um, do you uh, do you uh, do you ever get involved in conversations with the school for children? Do you do you do, like you know? In addition, I presume you have to write notes and things like that sometimes. But do parents ask you what do we tell the school? Uh, how how transparent should we be? Like, do, do yeah. you, is that is that part of what you do or no? Yeah. In in fact, we have. Um... We have a team of psychologists and social workers. So for at least for our institution and many pediatric institutions, we have um, every, you know, newly diagnosed child will have a team, you know, will have a psychologist or social worker assigned 
to their care. And oftentimes that person also helps with communication with the school because, um, you know, they uh, there's information that we can provide. We can also help set expectations around whether the child will be in school or will be absent, you know, and what what kinds of services they might need. Sorry, I told you my light was no, 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 that's start like shining through. You're coming from the skies. <laughs> And um, and so, you know, so we we often will will put them in place to try to help with yeah. that communication and so, you know, and help the other kids in school to understand what's going on so that they can be, you know, good friends and supporters to the, the child who's ill. One of the things that you alluded a little bit to in the editorial, but uh, you were spot on because it's something that I will leave relevant to all of us uh, when it comes to communication and you talk about this, is really communicating the numbers. I struggle with this. I'm not really sure how much numbers uh, do I need to deliver or tell people. Like In other words, if you, let's say, just theoretically, telling a patient and a family your response rate is 25%. Okay. Well, if they responded, it's 100%. If they don't, it's a 0%. So it's not really clear to me how much uh, uh, you do this. So I guess I wanted to reflect on two things that come to mind. One is when you are asked about how long do I have to live? Mm. It's probably a very difficult question to answer. And, and let's just, I mean, realistically, we it's very common that we are wrong as physicians. We just yeah. can't really always be accurate. And number two is when it comes to prescribing certain therapies and things like that, and you wanna go through the chances I mean, how much do you really think getting these numbers and explaining them really is absorbed or necessary? Yeah, I uh, I think that it's a great question. Um, so one of the things that we've looked at is, is how often um, parents and adolescents and young adults also say that they do want numeric prognostic information. And for both parents and young people, it's, you know, about 85% say they do want numbers. Um, and so, you know, that's what I think is helpful about that is number one, most people seem to want numbers, at least at some point. And so it's good to remember that. But I think the other thing that's important is not everybody does, right? And so you can't really make an assumption one way or the other. Um, and so I, what I usually do is just ask, you know, would it would it be helpful um, to talk about, for example, the chances of cure? And if it would be helpful, would you, are you a numbers person? Would you like to hear numbers or would it be better to hear just kind of in general in, you know, in words, what I think is likely. What have you seen? Like when you, when you do, do you think most people are numbers people or what do you think? So it, in my experience, most people will ask for a number, but not everyone. And there are a lot of people, uh, I find that there maybe not a lot, but I, I've definitely experienced a number of people who don't want it at the beginning. Um, but then if I revisit it in a couple of months, they're, they do want it, you know, they're kind of ready for it at that point. And so I think that's the other thing that's important to remember is that people change. And, it, you know, I think sometimes we feel like, okay, I, I addressed this once, 
few, they don't want it, I'm going to move on. And, um, and that can leave some people with their needs unmet too. And I think another assumption that that we sometimes make is that if people really want this, they'll ask for it, right? Like, uh, I don't have to offer it, because if they want it, they'll let me know. Um, but they may have to Google it and ask Chat GPT right now. And that, exactly, exactly. So they may look someplace else for it. They may not get accurate information because it doesn't have all the nuances that we look at as we formulate that number. And um, and also some people don't feel comfortable asking. And um, it, you know, their studies have shown that um, that men, for example, are less likely to ask for this kind of information. Information. Um, non-white patients, um, people of minority race or ethnicity. And so you may be leaving some populations underserved besides, you know, just yeah. the individual patients. Yeah. How about the the survival? Um, you know, I mean, I, yeah. I think, I mean, let's face it, if you believe clinical trial data, you always get median, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> And then clinical trial data don't reflect patients you see outside of trials all the time. But it is a very tough question to answer. How do you handle that? Yeah, I think it's very hard. I think that the kind of information we get from trials, like a median survival, is is very hard for people to wrap their minds around and understand what it really means for them. And so, you know, I uh, oftentimes I'll talk about um, like if I'm going to talk about a median survival, I will, I'll try to give them some context, you know, that this means that half of people have shorter survival and half of people have longer survival. And so this is, we're just talking about, this is what's smack in the middle of, you know, of what people can expect to do. And, you know, oftentimes at the beginning, it's hard for me to predict where they're going to fall on that range of possible survivals. But I, um, you know, I, I let them know often that with time, sometimes it becomes clearer, you know, and that we can revisit that so that if I think that things are getting shorter than that, or if I think that things may be longer than that, I'll do my best to, you know, be honest with them when that happens. And, you know, and then I I do try to revisit that because sometimes you get to a place where you realize that they're progressing more quickly or they're, you know, just not tolerating things as well. And, um, but, but, you know, we know that from experience, but patients, you know, that may not mean anything to them. And they may be still thinking, okay, two years is my time frame. when in my head, I'm thinking, yeah. oh, this isn't going well. A lot of time in communicating, Jennifer, um, um, this has happened to me. And I, since you, uh, you, you are a pediatric oncologist, I'm certain it happened to you. You say something, but the but the patient and the family heard something else. Yeah. I mean, you you know when the prognosis is bad and somehow they heard the prognosis is better or something. There was some some something that did not translate. Yeah. And you get into this down the road, you get into this awkward situation where you thought they understood what's going on and you realize they didn't. I'll venture to say this will create a difficult visit, a difficult conversation. How do we handle this as healthcare professionals in scenarios where 
what we are communicating is really not being heard the way we assumed it was heard. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's very common. Um, and uh, actually, uh, a situation like that is one of the reasons back in my training, I got interested in studying prognosis communication, because I had one of those experiences where I, you know, I thought I um, said something clear, and then, you know, came to find out later that the family understood something very different. And, um, you know, I think one of the things we can do that can be helpful is to try to just check understanding. Um, and so, you know, after we've had one of these conversations, whether it's that day or what maybe it's at a future visit, we can say, you know, um, last time we met, we we talked a little bit about what um, what we can expect, you know, what we can expect to achieve from the treatment or what what we're hoping for in terms of your survival and you know, one of the things I've learned is I don't always communicate this perfectly. So it would help me to hear from you what you took away from that. Um, yeah, and kind of repeat what you just heard. But but you have to do that before you get to that awkward position. Like you have to do that in the beginning, the first couple of visits. That's right. That's right. But if you if you do it sort of down the line, um, and and you know, then it doesn't give you the same chance to correct things. I I also think it can be kind of a delicate conversation. Like to you have to be a little thoughtful about how you ask it. Um, that's why I usually say I you know I've learned I don't always do a great job of communicating this because I think so. You know, every now and then, depending on how it's asked, I've. I've seen families feel like someone was questioning their intelligence or, you know, and yeah. of course you don't want to come off that way. It's more that this is just very complicated information. They're emotionally um, overwhelmed sometimes, which impairs processing and, you know, there's just yeah. a lot to it. So I'll have to tell you one of the things that, um, uh, kind of frustrated me, uh, is sometimes communicating adverse events. Yeah. and side effects i mean it is impossible to be inclusive right i mean you have like the top five six side effects that's going to happen with a particular regimen but we've all had seen unusual side effects things that didn't happen and you get this well i didn't know that yeah. uh, you never told me that um right. i wouldn't have gotten that chemotherapy had i known known this yeah. um you know, maybe there, I'm sure there's no really cookie cutter book to how you do this. But have you have you also encountered scenarios where there has been this this issue pertaining to side effects? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that it is true that things happen that we don't always prepare people for. And we might know it's possible, but we know this whole range of possibilities. And so, you know, when that's the case, I just try to be as honest about that as possible and and own it and apologize, you know, that they were that I didn't prepare them for it. I think that, uh, you know, I, uh, I know why we sometimes don't communicate every, every detail, you know, of these rare things. But I think when that rare thing happens to a patient, they, you know, they wonder why that didn't happen. And so I think trying to defend it or explain it is not always that helpful. Yeah. I think mm -hmm. often what they want to hear is that you, you know, that you're sorry. Yeah. 
I think we talked about the kids piece and all of that. But for adults, um, you know, if the family doesn't want the adult to know, uh, I mean, that's we should still let the adult know. Um, I don't know whether how do you coach people around this, but this is some of this is cultural, uh, right? I mean, as you know, there are you know the U.S. is <laughs> a melting pot, and we have different cultures, different ethnicities. And it depends on the culture when the family is from. It's not that uncommon, frankly, to yeah. get you aside of the room. And there are times, believe it or not, where uh, you are. I mean, it happened to me. I walked in and the patient was in the waiting area. Mm-hmm. I only saw the family. Yeah. Like, what? Like, and they. this has happened. Not con- I mean, not commonly, but it has happened yeah. twice that I can remember. So, yeah. so how, I mean, I don't know, like coach me, what do you do in situations like this? Do I stick to my guns and say, you know, I must bring, I, mean, I don't know, like, I, I don't know what the right approach. Yeah. I mean, I think it can, um, it can be helpful to, um, you know, I, first of all, I think you'd want to get the patient's permission to talk with the family. It's probably right. implicit because they're sitting out there and the family's right. there, but I, I might start by saying, look, I, I just need to check with your mom or whoever and make sure it's okay for me to have this conversation with you. And and assuming it is, then, you know, I think the, the first thing is just to kind of hear what their concerns are. What are they worried about? What are they imagining could happen? And, um, you know, uh, we know what they're probably worried about, which is that it's too stressful for the for the parent or whatever, it, you know, but um, but just to kind of hear them out and understand it. And because, you know, at that point, you don't know them. Right. And right. they don't know you. And so it's a it's a chance for you to hear. Maybe there is some valid concern that that you don't know. I mean, the concerns are valid, but you know what I'm saying? Maybe right. there is something that might make you say, oh, this is a terrible idea for me to disclose this information, I, you know, and um, and also it just gives you a chance to kind of talk it through with them. And yeah. and they, you know, if they um, know you a little bit better, they may actually, you know, uh, strangely enough, I think much of the time, things sort of work themselves out. You know, you, you bring up a good point. I mean, when you think about it, this family and patients are meeting a stranger, complete stranger, yeah. at the most vulnerable time of their lives. Yeah. And they're supposed to trust that person individually right away. So I could appreciate yeah. the, the difficulty in things. How about code status and DNR status? Uh, you know, um, is there a particular time where it is best to communicate and discuss this uh, do you use i mean do you need to do this in the first talk for example or this is later on because just depends on how things are going yeah i mean for for my own practice it's usually later on because you know even children with poor prognoses from the beginning usually have some time you know before this is before that's going to be urgent you know, I think that it's a it's a conversation. Sorry about the sun. No worries. <laughs> it's a conversation that tends to come up when um, you know when I'm generally talking about goals for care. Maybe I'll scoot over here. Yeah, you've got um, the right office. They give you the corner <laughs> office. It looks like with a lot of sunlight, so you're lucky. It's true. That's true. Um, 
So, um, so oftentimes, um, you know, if I'm starting to think about what's really important to them in their care and how they want what they want their care to look like, then that's kind of the time to think about, um, you know, what they want in terms of um, interventions and that kind of thing. And so to me, that kind of goes together. And so when when it's the right time to be kind of thinking about their goals and and especially if they're talking about, you know, wanting care that's more focused on quality of life and comfort, then that can be the right time to say, okay, well, you know, maybe we shouldn't be doing all the things that that we're able to do. Maybe we should do everything we can to make you comfortable, but not do these other things to to prolong life without focusing on comfort. What what other things, I mean, in communication that, uh, these are things just I can think about. And I mean, I could, uh, you know, I mean, do you, you know, um, there are times I presume where folks just, you know, go and get a second opinion uh, which is appropriate all the time yeah uh, but there are times they do this because of the lack of communication um yeah. i guess you know a what other topics within communication you think viewers and listeners really should be aware of that you as a researcher in the field feel are important and b do you feel that now the curriculum for current fellows residents and graduates are uh, is better where they get a little bit more training whether it is role playing and things like that i mean it, i don't know how you teach that uh because it requires really um creativity to teach it yeah i mean i i think with respect to the first question what what other things are important to know it, you know one of the things that I think is important is that a lot of what we think about when we think about communication is what we say, right? Um, But there's a lot more to it than that, you know? And so I think that it's equally important to listen and to understand how to listen and how to, um, you know, bring out people's stories and experiences and their wishes and, you know, all of those things, that's as important as the things that we say. So I think we forget that a little bit. And and certainly when we think about communication, a lot of what we think about is what am I going to say? And and I think communication has these other roles too, like um, helping um, patients to manage their emotions or, or, you know, supporting their emotions and, um, you know, these, these other pieces that are, that are not really just about information and decision-making. Mm-hmm. So I think those are things that we, you know, we just so easily forget because so much of what we do is, is really just sharing information. Uh, are there any questions, Jennifer, I should have asked you about the topic uh, that uh, other questions, do you feel that we've, we've covered everything? I mean, it's, it's a tough topic. It's a long, it's a broad topic, but there may be certain things that I should have asked you or you want to mention that uh, that you can probably go ahead and tell us. Um, well, I mean, you've asked such great questions. I think that... Um, you know, one thing uh, you've brought up education, and one thing that we didn't 
really talk about is how hard it is to really move the needle on improving communication, even with very thoughtful interventions. Um, so there, you know, there have been a number of different interventions intended to improve communication about prognosis, going back to the support study, you know, from from, I don't know, 25 years ago or something that that, that, that was conducted and, and, you know, up through now. And it's been very, very hard to improve communication about prognosis, to improve understanding by patients of prognosis and, um, and to improve the kinds of decisions that patients make. So there's a lot still to be learned about how to teach it and how to do it in a way that really changes care. Um, and I, you know, I hope that there will be a lot of continued work to figure this out because it's it's not so easy. Yeah. Well, th this was great. I, 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 it's a topic that is so important because cancer is a very complex diagnosis. There's a lot of nuances to it, to your earlier point. Um, and I think there's a lot of information out there. And, you know, by the time the patient saw you, they've done a lot of homework, yeah. which is good. Nothing is wrong with that. But sometimes that could actually make it a little bit more challenging because some of the information they got may not be accurate and, and other things. But I really appreciate you shedding some light on this. I, I think we should do really more episodes that are um, pertaining to communicating with patients. And uh, there's so many examples out there. Um, you know, maybe we'll end up on a note pertaining to what has been, because um, you're very interested in outcomes research um, on patient reported outcomes. Uh, I view this a form of communication yeah. because oftentimes a physician walks in the room and they have a review of system thing and they ask questions direct and sometimes thoughtful, obviously, pertaining to the actual disease and the actual uh, drug that's being used but it may not be really what the patient is worried about. You could ask about neuropathy, uh, vomiting, nausea, diarrhea, and the patient is really worried about the headache they're having. So um, put on your outcomes research hat and are you, uh, what are your thoughts about patient reported outcomes, how often this is being used right now and, uh, and where we're going from there? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great question. The, um, so, you know, I think that there's been increasing research on patient reports of their symptom experiences, for example, in oncology. And um, in the adult setting, um, uh, patient reporting of their symptoms has um, been associated with improved quality of life and maybe even survival, uh, you know, among patients who who directly report their symptoms through a um, through a reporting system as opposed to having providers just do that assessment. And and we found um, you know, in um, we've recently developed measures for children as well um, uh, with that work led by Bryce Reeve and Pam Hines um, and, and a lot of the work in oncology, in adult oncology was led by Ethan Bash and um, you know that, um, but I think there are still some challenges around this and, you know, one of them is, is sort of the, the nuts and bolts of how to do it, you know, how to collect this information routinely, 
and then how to transmit that information to clinical teams in a way that allows them to um, change care and you know improve care for those patients. And so it's really that kind of implementation piece that I think is still to be understood. And yeah. um, it, you know it, there's a lot of work going on now to try to understand how best to do it. And so it's really a, an interesting growing field. And, you know, I think has real potential to make care better for patients, um, but still some And it, it is a form of communication on the opposite end, yes. right? I mean, the patient is telling you what matters to them. So they're communicating Absolutely. that with you. Absolutely. You know. Yeah. 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 And as you say, there are um, real differences between what patients will report on a survey of their symptoms and what a doctor will report yeah, big time. about that. Yeah. And, big time. and actually in... For children, we've also found that um, children uh, have differences from their parents, and and their parents are not very accurate reporters of children's symptoms, which you would think that parents would be particularly good at it, but they they just don't fully know that experience. So yeah. it's important to let the patient be their own voice. Well, I really appreciate you visiting with me on the podcast. It means a lot to, to me, listeners and viewers. Uh, it's an important topic, and I hope that we can have you again, maybe uh, you know, next year or something, as we just learn a little bit more how things are changing. Because what I would like to cover, and I have not, but I don't think it's timely yet, is honestly, I think with AI and machine learning and, and the World Wide Web, it's going to change significantly with AI. So... Uh, I'll be very interested in your thoughts uh, next year. I kind of feel there's an editorial coming next year about discussing <laughs> that topic. So I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay. Stay on the lookout for that one. Sounds great. Thank you so much. Folks, thank you very much for listening. I appreciate your support. And thank you to Dr. Jennifer Mack for being on today's podcast. Such an important topic. I learned a lot from her and I look forward to hosting her again to learn some more. So thank you so much, Dr. Mack, for being on Healthcare Unfiltered. Don't forget to send me feedback and let me know what you think. You can direct message me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan. Send me an email and visit my website, www.shadinabhan.com. I appreciate your support as always. Thank you so much. And before I let you go, I would like to leave you with a saying by George Bernard Shaw. The single biggest problem in communication is the illusion that it has taken place. Until next time, take care.